hear God's word from Titus 1, beginning in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Well, Paul has now uh, presented Titus with two main tasks. The first one is very broad and really can apply to the rest of this letter. Since Paul left probably before he originally intended, there were several things that needed arranging. And then he jumps immediately in uh, to probably what is considered the most important task here for Titus, and that is to appoint elders in every one of the church plants throughout Crete. So whether it was five churches or 50 churches, however many there were in Crete, he was to appoint two or more elders in each one of these church plants. So as we talked about last time in Acts 14 and Acts 6, they would have followed the same pattern uh, done uh, in these other places. And so the people would have nominated men and then Titus would ordain them. Um, But they wouldn't just ordain any man, uh, but they would be men and not women. And so first of all then, as Paul begins to give some qualifications for uh, leaders in the church, uh, the man first of all had to be a faithful husband, and then secondly he had to be a good father. Simply, if you cannot lead well in the home, then how can you lead well at church? Well, Paul then is going to give us five vices that these men must avoid and uh, six virtues that they must have. And uh, here are these next couple verses. And then he's going to end in verse 9 with uh, basically an ability, you might say. But before he jumps into these vices, he gives us two more key terms here in regard to the leaders. So we saw in uh, verse 5 the term elder, but now here in verse 7 he uses another term. He says, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. And so this first term here in this verse is bishop. Your translation may say overseer or something like that. We get our English words episcopal or episcopacy uh, from this Greek term. Now, as I mentioned last time, the word for elder emphasizes age, maturity, experience, wisdom, these kinds of ideas. And so you're not talking about someone who is just basically young in the faith and just learning his way, but someone who is older in the faith with wisdom and experience. Well, now this term bishop emphasizes oversight, so hence the translation of overseer. Um, But we're not just talking about oversight like someone would 
be at a regular business, but we're talking about spiritual oversight, someone who watches over the flock. And so the idea here is not someone sitting in the boardroom making decisions, but someone who is watching over the people, the church. And so there is this idea of being with the people. You may recall I've said in the past that this term can be translated as visit. And so the idea here is that the elder, the bishop, is someone who is with the people. Um, and, and that can manifest itself in a variety of ways. So, um, again, this is something I've mentioned before. Let me say it again. I, I find it so ironic and sad that this term that emphasizes a really a shepherd with the flock, this idea of being with the people, has turned into this top-down hierarchy. When you think of an Episcopal church, you think of the Catholic churches, the Methodist churches, the Episcopal churches, the Anglican churches, things like that, with this top-down order. And everything starts at the top with the Pope or something like that and on, on the way down. And, and the idea of personal involvement with the flock is just not there. And so you have the so-called ruling class and then the laity. Um, but the, the term doesn't mean that at all. It's the exact opposite, really. And so Paul here then says that the elder is to be a bishop. This older, wiser, mature kind of man is to have this spiritual oversight um, and ability in terms of the church. All right, now let's look at a couple passages here. Let's turn first to First uh, Peter and chapter 5. And you may recall from before these, these words of Peter, and he says virtually the same thing as Paul. And so in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, it says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So notice how Peter doesn't set himself up as Pope here. And then he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So you see how he's defining shepherding as overseeing. And then he continues, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now we'll look at some of these later ideas, so keep that in mind uh, here in, in a few moments. But for now, do you see how he uses all the key terms? Elder, bishop, or overseer here, as the New King James says it, and shepherd. Let's turn now to uh, Acts chapter 20. And you recall this is when Paul was um, heading to Jerusalem just prior to his arrest and everything. And along the way, as he is revisiting <coughs> the churches from Corinth on around to Ephesus, here in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Uh, we have this very significant section in regard to the leadership of the church. And I'm not going to read all of it here tonight, but just uh, call our attention to uh, two verses in particular. Verse 17, first of all, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And then if you jump down to verse 28, he tells them, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So just like Peter, 
Paul says here, and he says in Titus, um, all these ideas, the idea of the, the older, wiser, experienced men who are going to have spiritual oversight and who are going to shepherd the flock. So when we put all three of these together, we're not talking about three different offices in the church. We're talking about one with a threefold kind of function. One office, but different aspects of the office are explained, described here for us with these different terms. Okay? And so there's the elder bishop shepherd, and then there are the deacons. Now, Paul also in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, makes a distinction between the elders and especially those who preach and teach. So we use the language of teaching elder and ruling elder. Both are elders, but the teaching elder is set apart specifically for preaching and teaching. All have the same authority. Ruling elders also preach and teach, but the teaching elder is set apart to focus on it. So in the end, there are two offices, not three, not four, not however many uh, that you might find in the Catholic Church or something like that. Two. And the office of elder has two categories. So, as we come back here then to Titus 1, Paul then again says to these older, wiser, more experienced men, you must oversee the church without blame. So he says, for a bishop must be blameless. Now, we saw that same term at the beginning of verse 6, if a man is blameless. And so, as I mentioned last time, um, this does not mean perfection. If that were the case, none of us could be leaders in the church. Uh, Only Christ could be. And ultimately, of course, Christ is king and head of the church, the ultimate bishop. Uh, But here, the emphasis is on someone who is without blame in regard to wrongdoing. Someone might bring a charge against the person, but they cannot be found guilty of that charge. Now again, none of us are perfect. None of us uh, can be without blame completely. But as a ruling elder, as a teaching elder, even as a deacon, this elder bishop must be without blame. And he's going to list... 11 things here, and he's already listed two uh, in that way. And so 13 altogether. All right, now before he gives us these five things to avoid, he now gives us another term, and that is as a steward of God. And God's providence, Stan was talking about stewardship this morning, and so there's definitely some overlap. Joe made a couple comments in Sunday school that uh, fit right in with uh, what we see here, the, the Greek word literally is translated the law of the house. And so we tend to paraphrase that by saying steward or manager or keeper or something to that effect. But he is the law of the house. He rules over the house. All right, now let's turn a moment to 1 Corinthians and chapter 4. Uh, This term is used um, several places here in the New Testament, and uh, this one is is, uh, very much in keeping with Paul's ideas uh, here in Titus. So in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 
Uh, it's not the same word as blameless, but it is a very similar idea. And here he's emphasizing stewarding the mysteries of God, so the, the gospel message, basically. Um, but here in Titus, it's, it's a broader idea than that. It's not just verse 9 that would fit with uh, the idea of stewardship, uh, but you might say everything. So um, I think it was Joe that mentioned this morning about Joseph, um, and, and that is uh, probably the best example of a steward in the scriptures. And so we think of Joseph, and first of all, he is a slave, right? He's sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he is bought by Potiphar. And before too long, he becomes the steward, the manager, the law of the house, the law of Potiphar's house. And everything was under Joseph's authority. Uh, and, and so forth. And we see he did a great job. Yahweh was with him and so forth until Potiphar's wife messed things up. <laughs> and then he's put in jail and it's not long and he becomes the steward of the jail too. And so he is the manager even as a prisoner. And then of course he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer and they forgot about him and so forth. And eventually they remember and Joseph then becomes the manager of all of Egypt, uh, all of that, that area there during the, uh, prior to the famine. And then, of course, during the famine especially, we see that. Now, typically, in the ancient world, stewards were either slaves or former slaves. It's possible Joseph was granted emancipation when he started um, Serving under Pharaoh, the, those details are not given to us, but certainly he was a slave for part of it. And so that fits for someone to become a manager of the master's estate. Again, typically it was a slave or a former slave. So as we apply some of these thoughts then to uh, what Paul is saying here, remember verse 1, Paul said he's a slave of God. And so as a slave, he is put in this position of managing God's house as this elder bishop, as this shepherd steward, okay, and apostle for Paul especially, okay, he is to manage God's house. We answer to God. It's his house in the end. It is his church that we are to manage. And so we are to care for everything. We are to feed all the animals so to speak we are to feed the flock we are to lead them to good pasture we are to give them sound teaching we are to protect them from enemies we are to exhort them unto godliness we are to disciple or excuse me to discipline them when they go astray we should lead in worship okay? and we could fill in the blank with several other things but this is the task of the elder bishop of the shepherd, of the manager. Not everybody's capable of doing that. And so Paul tells Titus, and by extension tells us, that we need to appoint men who are capable of doing these things. Okay? And so they are to meet certain standards. And it's not if they have certain letters before or after their name whether it's an MR or DR or PhD or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Those things are really not all that important, whether or not someone is qualified to be a good shepherd. 
a good steward, a good bishop and elder. Now, it may help, but that's not really what we're looking for. The same can be said for money or for prominence. Just because someone has lots of money, just because someone is well-known in the community, doesn't automatically mean they're going to be a good steward in God's house. And so success, according to the world standards, um, in one sense, don't matter. It's spiritual oversight, managing God's house that's important. And so God, or excuse me, Paul here is telling Titus, hey, one of the first things you have to do is appoint men who are like this in each one of the churches so that they can be spared from the false teaching, the rest of chapter one, they can have a sound family and church and such, chapter two, and on we go, okay? And so he'll expand on those details. And so these men... Uh, are the ones who are qualified to lead the church. All right, now, Paul's not done. He didn't just say good husband, good father. He doesn't just use these terms of elder, bishop, and steward. But now he gives to us five things that these men should not be doing. And so they are not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy, money. Now, I think we can, we have to say really that Paul could have given other things here. As you look at some of the other passages, like in 1 Peter 5 or in 1 Timothy 3, uh, there are some other things. So I, I, I think we need to be careful that we don't just simply say, okay, as long as the guy doesn't do these five things, he's fine. Okay. Again, this is just a sampling, if you will. Um, uh, of godliness, of, of, of sins to avoid. Now, he probably does list these five things, not only because they are generally true, but because they were probably unique to the needs in Crete. And uh, the vices, not only that all men are capable of falling into, but especially because of the teaching and, and culture and such of Crete. All right, so <clears throat> the first of these then, not self-willed. All right, your translation may have a different word there. It has the idea of being stubborn, of being arrogant, of being self-serving or obstinate, someone who is headstrong or overbearing. Okay, let's turn a moment to 2 Peter chapter 2. And the same word is used here in 2 Peter Uh, Chapter 2, picking up in verse 9, Peter is speaking of false teachers, and he says this, And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are in greater who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So these false teachers were boastful, arrogant. Angels wouldn't speak against even demons, okay? not in a mocking kind of way, but these false teachers were. And so Paul then is saying to Titus, and by extension to us, you do not want a leader in the church who is, has this kind of attitude. 
who thinks that they're always right, and everyone else must say that about them too. And if not, there will be a problem. (laughs) A leader isn't just someone who likes to be in charge of everything. A good leader isn't the one who always has the final word and rides roughshod over others to achieve their own goals. A leader is not like this, though that's what the world wants, and that's what we see all around us, even in churches sometimes. Now, it's understandable that Paul would start with this one, because when you're in leadership, it brings a kind of power. It gives you an authority. It gives you a kind of prestige. If you're leading the flock, then obviously you're up, you're in front in, in certain ways. And so... Um, it makes sense that he would start with this one because it's easy for us in positions of leadership in whatever capacity, whether it's church, home, or work, or whatever it is, to misuse this authority and to lord it over the flock. So remember what we saw in 1 Peter 5, verse 3. He says, not lording it over the flock. And so that's not the kind of leadership we're looking for. We're looking for leadership that you might say is humble. And so the opposite virtue here of self-willed is humility, gentleness, kindness, being gracious. And so we might uh, think of the servant leader ideas here. And so the person's a leader, right? They're not just sitting around doing nothing or something and and just following. They're they're leading, but they're leading in a, a godly way. All right, now let's look at the second one he lists here. The New King James says, not quick-tempered. And your translation may give some different uh, words here, but basically it's someone who is not prone to anger, someone who's not a hothead, someone who's not explosive and out of control in his wrath, who's not quick-tempered, right, losing his temper quickly. And so we don't want leaders who are like this. Now, again, it it makes sense that Paul would mention this because when you're leading the flock, it can be um, rather frustrating sometimes. We know this as parents. We know this as as, uh, teachers or uh, uh, someone who's in some kind of leadership at work. You know, the people can be very foolish blind and proud and demanding and stubborn and it can be very tempting for us in leadership to get impatient and start shouting around and telling people you know what's the matter with you or you know whatever right let me read here just briefly for you this is from proverbs chapter 29 and in verse 22 it says an angry man stirs up strife And a furious man abounds in transgression. Paul says we don't want men like that as leaders in the church. There's enough strife in churches. There's enough sin in churches. We don't need a man who's going to stir it up even more. So Titus, look for men who aren't like this. The opposite virtue then would be someone who is peaceable. Someone who is patient. Someone who is slow to anger. 
All right, so let's look then at the third term he gives us, not given to wine. Your translation may say not a drunkard or something to that effect. Now, we've talked about this before. Let me just uh, review these ideas briefly. Um, The Bible does not forbid us from drinking alcohol, but it does forbid us from being controlled by it. You're to be controlled by the Spirit, not controlled by alcohol. So you can be controlled by alcohol without having a full-blown, drunken stupor. A buzz is controlling you. Now, for some people, the buzz is you get rather sleepy. For other people, maybe you get emotional. For others, you get all excited or, you know, whatever it is. And so... um, Drinking in moderation is the idea, but, you know, it doesn't take much to cross that line to get in a buzz, and now you're not being controlled by yourself in the spirit. You're being controlled by something else. Now, we can go down the path of saying, well, the same can be said about coffee. Same thing can be said about our drug-induced culture, and I mean legal and illegal. Um, And so it's a... A discussion that goes beyond just alcohol. But our point here simply is, if someone is controlled by alcohol, even if it's just, you know, they, they, they cross the line a little bit on a regular basis, and they're not just, you know, totally stone-cold drunk here, um, that, that person can't be an elder. Let's turn a moment to First Timothy chapter 3. And let me read um, a few things here. In uh, 1 Timothy 3, okay, notice verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, just like we talked about a little bit ago, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. And then he says, not given to wine. And then notice he follows that with not violent. We'll see that here in Titus. Not greedy for money. So these three are in the same order here as they are in Titus. Okay, but then note the contrast. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And then talks about being a steward of your house and so on. And then if you look down at verse 8, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, and so forth. And so Paul says this about uh, elders. He says it about deacons. He says it to Timothy. He says it to Titus. And so the culture in both Ephesus and in Crete was very similar. Um, there, you might say there were bars everywhere. Uh, they worshiped Dionysius. Dionysius or Bacchus. Hey, these were the, the gods of, of uh, partying, you might say. And in fact, you could go to a temple of Dionysius and part of your worship is to get drunk. So we do that in our bars today or something to that effect. Okay. But again, Paul says you can't have an elder that does these kinds of things. All right, now <clears throat> that might seem like an easy thing. So think of it like this. As elders, uh, we're going to see here uh, in uh, verse 8 about being hospitable. So, you know, if you have somebody over to your house and you offer them a glass of wine or a beer, um, you know, you've you got to be careful about what this may mean. Or maybe even more so, say you as an elder go visit someone in the church and they offer you 
a glass of wine or beer. And you say, okay, yeah, sure. And, you know, you're socializing and so forth. And then you go visit somebody else and they do the same thing. And now you've got two kind of back to back within an hour or so of each other. Well, then what? And say you visit three or four people in a night. I mean, do you see the point? It, it, just being sociable can lead to problems. It's not just you're going out to the sports bar and getting drunk and, and uh, high-fiving these people you don't know because your team is winning. Uh, we can be tempted to being given too much wine in these other ways as well. Now, I've also mentioned on other occasions that uh, when we're thinking about alcohol, we need to also consider the, our motivations for why we do this. Okay. Frankly, we don't need to have alcohol in our culture at all. Alcohol, historically, and even in parts of the world today, is used because there is not clean water. And so you needed alcohol to basically stay healthy, to kill the germs. But we don't need that. We can go to pretty much any uh, local store and buy bottled water. We don't need alcohol. Um, add to that, um, our culture just everywhere we turn encourages us to drink, to be cool, to, be, to fit in. Just watch almost any beer commercial Okay. Um, obviously, people drink to escape. People drink to, uh, to rebel. Um, there's been very few people in my experience that truly drink freely in Christ. Okay. Listen to people when they start talking about alcohol. Okay. Listen to what they say. If they start sounding like some junior high kid that thinks this is just the coolest thing, you know, you know that their motivations are not in the right place. Okay. So we need to be careful here. Furthermore, <coughs> it's rather a waste of money. <laughs> it can be rather expensive. All right, now, the last thing to mention here in this context is remember what Paul teaches us in Romans chapters 14 and 15, where he says that we must be examples. We just read that in First. Uh, Peter 3, we must be example, uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 3, we must be examples to the flock. So combine that with Paul's teachings in Romans and, you know, maybe we shouldn't drink at all so that we don't offend our brother or sister in the Lord. Um, or as I mentioned before, hey, I, I, if we're going to drink, I think we should limit it to one glass. And maybe even that's too much. Because once you start adding to that, it is so easy to cross the line into a buzz. And now you're starting to be controlled by something else. Okay. So our point here, obviously we could spend a lot of time talking about this topic. But the point simply is Paul says, look, Titus, you don't want men who drink too much. Even if they just think they're coming up to that line of, of, of not crossing into the point of no return, if they're constantly doing that, you wonder if they're going to be a good steward of God's house. All right, well, certainly we could say more. Now notice then the next uh, term here is not violent. You remember we read there in 1 Timothy 3, the same pattern. 
from wine to violence. And, and so um, uh, this term violent simply means someone who's pugnacious, someone who's quarrelsome, someone who gets into fights, uh, the, the uh, school bully or something like that. Uh, the person who forces others to do things his way, maybe with fists, maybe with words, maybe with intimidation. And so maybe you think of people at work who can be like this. Um, so you, you don't want someone who's this kind of person in general. But again, because it follows on the heels of alcohol, it, it seems like we should at least include this in our understanding. If a person has... He thinks just a little bit to drink, and he becomes rather pugnacious. Then, uh, obviously, he's had too much to drink, even if he th- says he hasn't. And you don't want this kind of person as a leader in the church. How can you oversee the church and the flock if you cannot oversee yourself? It's that really that simple. And so good leaders do not need to force anyone to follow them, servant leaders compel the flock to follow. So there's no need to be a bully if you're a good leader. All right, well, let's look at the last one here briefly then. Not greedy for money. All right, now, certainly this includes the love of money. Right? The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, right? We're not socialists here. But the love of money is the root of all evil. And certainly we can talk about that. But um, many of the commentators tried to make the case, and I, I think they're onto something, that, that this idea of being greedy for money includes dishonesty in some way. Acquiring it in a way that is underhanded. Not just loving it and, and maybe honestly gathering up money and just storing it up but but it seems to emphasize more of that underhanded way of trying to get it a money grubber or someone who's covetous and then uh, does some sinful things to gain it Um, now again uh, like every one of these terms it makes sense that Paul would mention these things since elders oversee the money in the church he can easily be tempted or others may suspect wrongdoing. And so whether it's a small church like ours or a mega church with millions of dollars, okay, the leaders in the church must not be greedy for money. And so whether it's embezzlement or just slipping a 20 in your pocket when you're counting the offering or something like that, okay, we don't want men who will do those kinds of things. Now some people have taken this uh, uh, this vice here, this command not to be greedy for money, and has said that uh, leaders in the church must um, either undergo a vow of poverty or, you know, this encourages the church not to pay their pastors very much so they won't be tempted uh, and this kind of thing. But that's not the point. Abraham, in equivalent money, had millions and millions of dollars. So it wasn't Um, wrong to have money. Paul's not saying that at all. But a man must not be greedy for it. And so there are a number of things that we can do, and probably the things that are most obvious for us here is that we have two people count the money. We have two signatures on checks and and so forth. And so these are ways to help uh, protect in these ways. 
All right, so uh, this issue of money, you might remember, is mentioned here. It's mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, and in verse 8. So for elder and deacon, it's also mentioned in 1 Peter 5. So again, call your attention to what I read a little bit ago. All four places mention about money. So it's an obvious temptation. And many churches, and maybe we could say every church in history has had a struggle with money at some point in time. Um, maybe a small problem, maybe a very big one, uh, but it's certainly very common. And so uh, Paul's words here make a lot of sense. Well, as we think about these things, uh, let's uh, expand our thought here just a moment. As people of God, as the flock, as the sheep, every one of us must avoid these sins. All of us struggle with the sins of pride and anger and dominance and wealth in one way or another, and some of us struggle with drink, or maybe we should say being controlled by another substance. And so again, the, you know, the Christian drug that's acceptable is coffee. Um, but um, all of us probably struggle with at least a few of these in one way or another. And so as Christians... We should avoid these vices. But then it goes up to a whole different level. When we're talking about leaders in the church, we must have men who will avoid these things. And once we are chosen to be leaders in the church, we must persevere in righteousness, and we must improve on our godliness and not succumbing to these temptations. There are certain temptations that we as Christians, may uh, struggle with at a certain time in our lives. And maybe 20 years later, we don't struggle with that one, but we struggle with another one, or we have our uh, ebbs and flows, and so on and so forth. But as God's people, and especially as leaders, we need to improve on our blamelessness here in these ways. And so remember, as Paul says here, we are slaves of God, and we are stewards in God's house. So we must do what he says, and we answer to him. He wants the leaders in the church to oversee in this virtuous way. And so as one commentator summarized the five things, he put it this way, Paul begins with these five ways that the leader should not be like the world. The sin of pride, of temper, of drink, of power, and money. That's what occupies unbelievers. We must be different. And in God's grace, hey, we can be. And so at our current state in our church, hey, the, the leaders that we have, including the deacons, right, we should be striving to maintain these things and improve in blamelessness in these ways. Okay? In the future... Maybe it's the, uh, the near future, maybe it's the distant future. When we think about other leaders, again, keep these things in mind. But all of us should strive to live a life of godliness, as Paul instructs us here. So we'll end with this here tonight, and we'll pick up with some of the virtues, then, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word. You have given and preserved for us, and uh, here's such a, a practical uh, section, 
and uh, a list of, of things here is so uh, easily understood and, and um, um, so readily applicable for us. Uh, but Lord, we, we ask for your help, um, certainly for understanding, but especially that you would help us to live this out, that you would help us as uh, elders, as deacons, you would help us as Christians, as leaders in our homes and maybe in other capacities in our lives, you would help us to, to lead in, in a way that is honoring to you, that manages your, manages your house well and, and um, the world in which you've placed us, that, that we would be good stewards in all things. Uh, we pray especially for the leaders here at Rocky Springs, that you would help us to be blameless in these things, and that you would uh, help us to improve in our godliness, and in this case, that you would help us to avoid sin, that you would help us and strengthen us to, to not be tempted and su- to succumb to that, those temptations, uh, but that we would be virtuous, that we would be righteous and, and holy and godly in your sight for the sake of your people, your flock, your church. And so we pray all these things then for your honor and for your glory through the name of Christ. Amen.